believers to gather together every Lord's Day to worship our God. And it is an even greater privilege that we have access to Him. At this moment in time, we have a great access and privilege of coming before Him as children, asking all of our wants, needs, desires, showing before Him the needs of the church here on this earth and throughout, obviously, the world in it. And so I'll give you a brief time of silence to ask our God all that you desire and need, and then I'll lead us in corporate intercession. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we are a needy people. Our needs are seen before you even as we gather to worship you on this Lord's Day morning. We have needed you every waking moment, every sleepless night, even as we sleep soundly. We are in need of your grace and mercy. We need you to intervene, O Lord, regularly throughout our days and lives. And so we gather, O Lord, in great confidence and care that as your children, you not only hear us, but according to your will, you hear our prayers. So we believe, O Lord, that as we gather, we pray for our civil government, the government that, whether we like it or not, you, O Lord, have placed over us. We pray, O Lord, for our local government today. We think of the various uh, spheres that our government is tasked to oversee. We think of our fire departments this morning as they are charged in regards to rescue and care. We pray, O Lord, that you continue to raise up men and women in the sphere of fire uh, to protect our communities and homes. We pray, O Lord, and thank you for their service among us. And we pray, O Lord, that you create within us a gratefulness for this service, that you give us an appreciation for those whom you've placed over us to help protect and preserve not only our estate, but the estate of our neighbors. We pray also, O oh Lord, for the mission of the church throughout the world. We think of the seminaries, the reformed seminaries, O oh Lord, that you have used throughout our country to raise up gospel ministers and counselors. We pray, O oh Lord, for Reform Seminary, for Covenant Theological Seminary that's right across the river here, for Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and O oh Lord, there are many more. We pray for all of them and their administrations as they seek, O oh Lord, to raise up men who will preach the truth of the gospel as we believe it in the Reformed faith throughout this country and also throughout the world. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would make their path sure that you would recommit their administrations, their faculties to our confessional documents in the Scriptures. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue to raise up ministers for the next generation of the church that believe your truth without wavering and compromise. We pray, O oh Lord, for these covenants, uh, these uh, presidents of these seminaries, whether it be Tom Gibbs or or Ligon Duncan, or Jonathan Masters of Greenville. We pray, O oh Lord, that you continue to hold fast these men in the faith, and that by their example, that they would represent our faith well throughout our country. 
Continue to raise up men, O Lord, to fill your pulpits from these seminaries. And may we, O Lord, benefit from this great mission and work, even as it is felt throughout the world. We also pray, O Lord, for those who are lost. We think of those who are lost in Australia. How infrequent have we prayed, O Lord, for the lost of that country, that continent. We, O Lord, pray for them. We pray for revival in their midst. We pray for the Presbyterian church there and for the congregations that faithfully adhere to your word. A difficult context, no doubt, to minister in. We pray, O Lord, that you'd soften the hearts of the Australians, that there would be true repentance of faith, that their culture and their society would reflect that great transformation as well. But we pray, O Lord, for missionaries, for preachers, for counselors to go there and to present Christ to that people. Soften the hearts there and bring about true revival for the Australian people. We also pray, O oh Lord, for our own church. We think of the officers in the church this morning. We think of our diaconate in particular. We thank you, O oh Lord, for their service among us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue to sanctify these men as examples within our congregation. We pray, O oh Lord, that they would be examples uh, of the grace of liberality from among us. That by their selfless giving, we learn, O oh Lord, to give ourselves within the congregation. We pray that this grace of liberality, this self-sacrificial nature of the office therein would be efficacious for everyone who comes into our church. That we would be a self-giving church, giving all that we are to one another as a people that love one another. We pray for our diaconate that you continue to exercise this grace among them and may it be so intoxicating that we experience it ourselves within our own lives as well. We also pray, O oh Lord, for the needs of our church. We think of the, the need of the conference coming up at, at the end of this week, this coming week. We pray, O oh Lord, that you convict us to engineer it well, to sign up where need be to serve and to serve well, and still within all of our hearts a heart of service for your church, being a people of relationship, O oh Lord, we pray that we would grow as a people of relationship. We also are delighted, O oh Lord, by the presence of Joanne this morning. It is so delightful to hear her voice as she sings, so delightful for those who have been absent from us to be back within our fold for various reasons. We pray, O oh Lord, for continued healing upon her now. We pray, O oh Lord, that you give her doctor's wisdom, that you perk up her spirit, that you sustain her, that you give Dan wisdom to care for her well. But we pray, O oh Lord, for all of our congregation. There has been much sickness amongst us, whether it be stomach bugs or flu-like symptoms. We've all experienced the pain of sickness, whether that be within our own families or outside of that. We have all seen it well and routinely here in this season. And so we pray, O oh Lord, for healing upon us. Heal us that we might gather to worship you and worship you well. But you, O oh Lord, know the needs of our hearts, and we bring them all before you. In the name of our Lord Jesus, 
Amen. Turn your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be picking up in verse 12 this morning. Last week, our text left off on the work of humility that Christ imposes upon His people by not only His example, but also our new identity found in Him. And now we see the outworking of that identity within us. Not only does it lead the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to humility, but it leads us to working out our salvation in this life. We see the bolstering of our new identity in Christ in Philippians 2, picking up in verse 12. Stand with me as we hear the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. There are varying degrees of wicked and crooked generations in every society. Perhaps you sit here today thinking we live in a perverse, crooked, wicked generation. But when I was reading this, I was reminded of the Reformation. I was reminded of the time and the difficulty it was to be a reformer or even a believer in that age. Post-tenebrous lux, after darkness light, was the major phrase of the Reformation that even though we are in the midst of a dark and crooked people, there would be light at the end of this generation. Post-tenebrous lux, one of the favorite phrases of Calvin himself as he ministered in Geneva. But I want you to draw your minds back to what it would have been like to live through the Reformation in the 15th and 16th century. Imagine a time where churches did not look like this. Imagine a time where there were no lights, indoor plumbing was centuries away, showers and baths were perhaps once a week or every couple of weeks. Imagine a time such as that. If you were living in that time, I would expect most of you to be serfs in a feudal system. You'd have come to your church, your medieval church, to worship multiple times throughout the week. And as you came, there was little to be offered for you. You would come and the services would be in Latin, but you'd speak German, French, or English. The Bible that you'd have open before you, if you were privileged enough to even have one, would be in a language and a tongue that you'd never heard of. 
You're reminded of that great phrase, hocus pocus. That's what the feudal peasants said happened at church. It was a bunch of hocus pocus. I don't understand anything that is going on at all. As you would have sat there lowly, you would have listened to the choir sing worship to God in words you could, did not recognize. As the Lord's Supper would come, you would remain seated as the priests would feed one another. Why waste the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on a peasant's beard? Why let the crumbs of the body of Christ fall to the ground? It was a difficult time to be a Christian. Your gospel as a serf in the 15th and 16th century started and ended with the pictures you saw on the walls and in the glass. You saw and that is all you knew. You knew not the word. You knew not the sacraments. You knew not the worship. You sat there. It would have seemed that the light of Christ was mere flickering. Flickering as the candles before you as you sat as a believer in that age. But after darkness, light. What did the Reformation do? It changed all of this. You, you would begin to come into worship and have a Bible in your own tongue, sermons in your own vernacular and words that you could understand. Organs, whether you like it or not, were melted down into spoons so that the congregation itself would sing the songs. After darkness, light. But it was not without heartbreak and hurt. As missionaries would go out through the world, as reformers would work tirelessly in the Reformation, many would die. Tyndale would be as tinder on a stake for translating the Bible into English. It was a difficult time, but after darkness, light. Paul is no foreigner when it comes to the church facing adversity here. He is thinking of the same thing, the same reformational mantra as we look down and we read the text just a few minutes ago. This is a crooked and perverse generation, but you are to shine as lights, as stars on the earth. You are to be a people, a city on a hill, a presence of Christ to this wicked generation that they might be reformed and believe in him. Paul might empathize with the reformers. He might empathize with us as we experience our own secularism, relativism, individualism, even neo-paganism in our own time. What a wicked and perverse generation we might think this is. And in the midst of that wicked thought of this wicked world, we might become discouraged. Discouraged count out, unvictorious, unencouraged, but not so for Paul, not so for the reformers, and not so for us. For what this passage reveals to you today is that when we receive Christ in our hearts, He leads us to working out that salvation throughout all our lives, throughout all our lives, even in the midst of a dark world. 
And so how do we lead out, how do we live out that salvation that he instills within us? Well, look down at the text with me. First, we see that uh, we work with a faithful obedience. How does the Lord lead us into working that salvation? Well, he leads us to working a faithful obedience. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You might ask, well, how are we to work out our salvation? How are we to work towards our salvation? Does that mean that we accomplish our salvation ourselves? That we achieve what is necessary to be saved? It's a rhetorical question that I hope no one would answer in the affirmative. We're Presbyterians. We, we know it to be so. We all would, and at least in that thought, everyone would agree that God is responsible for our own justification. But who is responsible for our sanctification? Justification is being made right with God. Sanctification is being made holy with God. Who is responsible for making us holy with God? Well, some would say that we are. That it is our work to be holy before God. Work out your salvation. How do you work it out? You make yourself holy. But I believe verse 13 tells us how we work out our salvation. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you, but not only works in you, He puts His will in you for His good pleasure. What verse 13 tells about how we achieve active, faithful obedience, it is through the work of God. The God that not only changes our wills, as verse 13 says, but also changes our works. He is the one that works our salvation. He is the one that works us towards holiness. You're reminded of the great phrase of Jonathan Edwards that, the only, thing, uh, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. It rings true within this passage. You are able to work because He works in you. Everything that you do is a result of His work in you. He changes your desires. He changes your behaviors by sending His Spirit to be with you. All of your holy desires, all of your holy actions are not found from within you, but what Christ has placed in you. I'm reminded of what Ryle says in this same very vein where, where he says, even my best works, even my best days are riddled with sin. Even my best ideas, even the best things I do in this life are riddled with sin, my self-pride, my self-preservation, my self-love, what, what roots in even my best actions. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. But then what of this obedience? The word obedience is found at least a couple times throughout this passage, but in the larger scope of chapter 2, it is repeated over and over again. What of this obedience? If Christ does all the work, what responsibility do I have? My passive. Well, I think it calls us back to verse 8. If you go up just a few verses, it, when we think of our obedience, it's connected to verse 8. Being found in the form of human, he himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Our obedience is drawn towards the obedience of Christ himself. He is the source of our obedience. All that we and our obedience achieve are grounded intricately to his obedience and most vividly to his obedience to death on the cross. He spared not his own life that we might be alive in him. It's by his work that we ourselves work. He is the work that worked. And we, in that work, participate in good obedience. You see, when the Lord comes in, and this is how we can protect ourselves from being prideful, He is the one that changes how we think. He is the one that changes how we do. And because He does that, He deserves all, our, all, his, all the credit that we would like to give to ourselves. But even Paul recognizes that there are times where it's easier to be obedient and not. I love Paul's verse here. It reminds me of my own experience as I was a new convert. He says, it is probably easier in my presence to continue in faithful obedience. I'm paraphrasing there. But he says, it is probably easier to obey when I am with you than when I am not with you. It reminds me of those seasons in life where I feel spurred to great obedience. I am on fire for the Lord. My zeal is untouchable. I'm excited. The Spirit just seems to be cleaning up everything. I'm reminded of my winter retreats in high school. I used to love going on winter retreats. We would go to Spring Hill camps. We would have all sorts of fun at those camp centers. I had very little freedom, it seemed. And so at those camps, I felt like I had all the freedom the freedom to love the Lord and gathering to hear lessons regularly throughout the day, all day throughout the week. I felt the freedom to go on the tubing hill in the craziest manner possible, to snowboard and to try to do things I probably shouldn't have tried, paintballing, cross-country skiing. I loved going on these trips. These were exciting trips. And I remember as we would depart from Spring Hill, as it was clockwork, I would always lament having to leave. I would lament having to leave because throughout that weekend, I, I just felt so enamored by the Spirit and His work in my life. I, I was zealous. I would go home, I would chart out Bible plans that I would never finish, and I would be excited to be a Christian. I would go into school excited to read my Bible to tell my friends, to go to youth group, to go to church on Sunday. I was excited, but what I realized is as I left Spring Hill, the world did not care. I would go to school, and no one cared. Go to church, and it was just normal church. I would go to youth group, and it was just normal youth group. The world would be doing its normal thing while I was zealous, and I would feel my flame stamped out, stomped out by the world. It's difficult. It was easy to be a Christian at Spring Hill. It was even easy to be a Christian off the high of Spring Hill for a couple weeks. It was difficult in the absence of Spring Hill. It was difficult in the absence of the apostle. They're back to their normal Philippian lives, and it is not easy. It's not easy. It's easy to stand behind your general, to stand behind Paul as he goes into battle, as you are with him, as he bolsters you. But the moment he leaves... You feel wayward. The 
flame seems to flicker, and obedience seems hard-pressed. You might think faithful obedience is grounded in you, but it is not. It is in God's work. It is His work in us. But you might think, well, how do you apply such a passage as that? If it's God's work, how do you have any expectation for me? Well, there has been much controversy in the PCA on this kind of question. Uh, my former pastor called them the grace boys for those who said there's no, it doesn't matter how you live, just live lawlessly because the Spirit's working in you. Just look at Jesus and go to those parties and get drunk, do drugs, whatever, it don't matter. Just live recklessly because grace, that's why they're the grace boys, grace. There's no responsibility, but this is a reminder for our own heart check. Am I in a season of rebellion against the Lord? Am I, am I struggling at living, law, at living lawfully with Him? It's a heart check. How close am I to the Lord at this moment? Am I living in active rebellion against Him? This should push us to prayer. When we are struggling with our own sinfulness, when, when our own sinful patterns that we have tried to slay with our own work, with our own hearts, with our own strength, and we have failed time and time again, we are to be reminded that it is the Lord who will bring this to completion. R.C. Sproul, I think, said at one point in his life that sanctification is imperceptible. It's paraphrasing him, so just bear with me. It's imperceptible, but... and. And we all grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, but some years are like centimeters. Like centimeters. We, we, we expect when we become Christians to always grow like this in the Lord every year. I remember when I became a Christian, as I mentioned Spring Hill just a moment ago, the Lord just wiped away so many sins in my life. And I thought, man, I might be perfect by the end of this life. And then a few years set in. And in my own hubris, I started studying the Ten Commandments. And then if you start reading the shorter catechism on the Ten Commandments, you say, well, maybe I have not changed much at all. I was excited in my zeal. The Lord has destroyed and slayed so much. And now these days, some years I'm excited about incremental growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. My anger is a little better this year. My sarcasm is a little softer Less bite in the Edberg home. It's a good gauge and reminder of the Lord's work. Growth is imperceptible. And sometimes it's much smaller than we'd even like. But we are reminded that it is His work in us. And because it is His work in us, this does not give us license to be rebellious. It's quite the opposite. Because we are reminded in verse 13 over and over and over again that it is the Lord's work to change your will and your behavior. It is His work. And so if your behaviors, if your wills are outside of His will, that is an area that the Lord needs continued uh, pressure upon. He needs, you need His continued presence and work. And it is not something that we can joyously say as we are at those parties, as we do things that are outside of His will. It is not a time of pride that the Lord will cover these sins. It's a time of shame as we are reminded that He still has work in us to do. Every one of us 
has experienced this. When we receive Christ in our hearts, even in the midst of difficulty, He leads us to working out our salvation. This means by living a faithful obedience, but this also means that we are to work towards a patient attitude. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing. This is written for me. It's written for you. A dirty, rotten attitude is what Paul has in mind here. If you are to live according to the salvation that has been worked in you, you are to live it with a good attitude. Getting back to that debased, dark generation of the Reformation, or even the wicked and crooked generation of Paul times, or even our own. When we hear it, we just love to get grumbly about it. We like to dispute. We grumble from within and throughout. Our attitudes are a reflection of our own spiritual nurture in the Lord. When we are grumbly, we are discontent, it shows us our own sin. We are discontent with what the Lord has given us. But how many of you woke up grumbly, disputing even this morning? We have a great propensity to be a grumbly people. I am an overanalyzer, and I overanalyze every conversation I've ever had. I overanalyze every conversation I'll have this Sunday. I'll go home wondering if I made grumbly people by what I said or did or their lack of. Scott didn't say hi to me this Sunday morning, and now you're grumbly, and I'm grumbly because I forgot to. We can be grumbly people. In living in a dark age, certainly, we can be a grumbly people, grumbling against our government, the state we live in, wishing it were a different state, or the the jurisdictions were redrawn to cut out a certain city within our own state. We can be a grumbly people. My family is known as being grumbly. Uh, whenever I visit my family at home, I'm always, I always have to prepare myself for a grumble, just a grumble fest. We grumble about everything. And maybe you do too. The most grumbly I get uh, is, is typically when I'm in pain. Have you ever had long exposures to pain in your life? When I moved to Tuscumbia, I, began, I developed back problems, and for a quarter there, the pain was just constant. I went to a doctor. They, they said I had scoliosis, but everybody has scoliosis, so didn't know what to do with that. I went to get physical therapy, and I was getting injected with needles that, that sent shivers through my spine, and they are trying to fix my back. And then I went on vacation, and my back felt better. And I thought, what happened? I, you know, it wasn't the physical therapy. My back suddenly feels better. And I get back to realize it was just my chair, just my chair that I sat in in the office. It just ruined my back. And I was in constant pain because of it. But during that whole quarter, I remember nearing the end of it before a vacation, just being so short-tempered. I, I, I was just so, I was irritable. My wife would do something so minor, and, and I, I would just lose it. My kids would need something from me, something normal that you'd ask for your, from your father, and I would be so grumbly about it. Get it yourself. When we're in pain. We can become irritable. We can become grumbly. It's hard to be joyful <laughs> when you have a nagging pain, whether that be a back, a shoulder, an arm. It can be discouraging. And it is a great call that Paul calls us to as Christians. Forbids this action. Forbids this attitude. Forbids us to be 
grumblers. One commentator says Jesus' followers are to engage one another and their non-Christian neighbors with patience and selfless contentment, neither grumbling in self-pity, I'm prone to that, not questioning God's purpose at all. Even if the world is crooked, even if the world is twisted, these are moral categories. If they are a world that you encompass seems to be morally debased, despising the things of God, hating God Himself, you are not to lower yourselves to their standards. Instead, you are to do so with a good attitude, with a godly attitude, with a blameless attitude. Because we are reminded in this passage that the church is different from the world. As the world grumbles, as the Edward clan grumbles, we are to be a light in the darkness. Light in the skies, light as stars that shine throughout the world. Innumerable, inescapable, unless you live in a city. Every time you look up, you see those stars. Every time you see a believer, you should see the light of Christ shining in them by their attitude alone. Their attitude sets them apart. I love when I can sense an inordinately joyful human being. And I always, the first thing that goes in my mind is, are they a believer? Are they a believer? They're not like the world. They have their attention fixed on something. In the South, there's the great phrase, I'm fixing to. It's the Southern way to say I'm going to do something. I'm fixing to get my car washed. I'm fixing to go to to practice. I'm fixing to go to this crawfish bowl. I'm fixing. We're to fix our eyes upon the Lord. And in doing so, He alleviates that grumbly heart that is within each and every one of us. Remember, Edbergs are grumbly people. We grumble. We grumble about our bosses, we grumble about our finances, our children, our friends, our health. We grumble a lot. And it is a reminder for me in this passage that, that Paul forbids it. Why does he forbid it? Because it discounts the Lord's work in our lives. Look at all he has done for you. Think, if you go home today and you just say, we are going to devote this day, if you could even try, to having a good attitude. Think as families, as you eat lunch and dinner together, as you relax on this Lord's day, think if you devote it to a good attitude. Think if you, you pursue having a good attitude. It's hard. But to be blameless in Christ, as this passage says, it is our great pursuit. We are to be different from the world, and we work out our salvation with patience a patient attitude. But lastly, we work out our salvation with sacrificial joy. That's how Paul ends this passage here. He ends it with sacrificial joy. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon a sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is sensing his own mortality here. As a believer who buys their own grave plot and looks at their name upon the square in the ground, Paul senses he is not long for this world. Whether Paul dies today, tomorrow, or even in a few years, Paul knows that his death is soon and that his life will be poured out. And it might be a temptation for the church when Paul dies, when they receive that faithful news, that letter from Rome, 
It would be a, ten a temptation for the church to be discouraged, to be grumbly, to, to struggle. But Paul points them to something else. If Paul is poured out, remind yourselves that you are a drink offering poured out with him. This is Old Testament language, and I'm sure we haven't studied the book of Leviticus. Maybe after Mitchell finishes Exodus, we'll, we'll then kill our Sunday school program with Leviticus. But if we get there, we'll get to learn about sacrifices that none of you care about. And if you knew those sacrifices that you should care about, you'd understand what Paul is trying to say here. The drink offering was an offering poured on the burnt offering in order to make it smell better. Burnt food doesn't smell good. If you ever burnt something, it doesn't smell good. It doesn't smell good to God either. And so the priests would pour wine all over that animal so that as they burned it, it smelled great. That it was a pleasing aroma to God himself as well to the people around. The Philippians are to be a drink offering unto Paul, unto Christ. They are not themselves the sacrifice. That is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And perhaps as Paul identifies as a suffering servant, Paul dying for the church, in the sake of the church. The Philippian church is probably not to experience anything like what Paul has experienced, but they participate too. Their continued work in the Lord Jesus Christ is a drink offering, poured upon the burnt offering in order to bolster the sacrificial experience. Now, I'm not saying that our works make the death of Christ more appealing to God in a redemptive sense. God's sacrifice in the Son is complete. He needs not us to make it better. But God delights in seeing sinners transformed and enter into his kingdom. He delights in it. It is a pleasing aroma. It is the result of Christ's death. We are poured out upon Christ as a drink offering to be an aroma, a fragrance to God of all that Christ has accomplished. We are the drink offering that is said to be here. You are the drink offering. And even in the midst of terrible difficulty in a debased generation, with our joyful attitudes, we can be joyful even in our sacrifice, even in difficulty, even in death. If Paul dies today, I, Paul says, I am glad, I rejoice with you in it, and I want you to rejoice with me as well. We're reminded elsewhere that Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. We've already heard that. And that's what Paul's talking about here. If he dies, rejoice with me, for I am with the Father now. It is rejoicing experience, even sacrificially. We can rejoice in difficulty. When we add, we, we add, we add to the delight of God as He saves us. I kind of think of it as, as sushi. Uh, I love sushi. Many of you probably have never even had sushi, and I'll, I'll change it. Ask Scott Lawler, I'll change it. Uh, I love sushi. The main course of the sushi is obviously the raw fish and rice, but there are things you can add that elevate a sushi experience. Breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs are a delightful add to sushi. It makes it crunchy. It changes the texture of the food, the raw fish that enters 
your gullet. It, it changes it. The wasabi, that adds a nice spice flavor to it, a kick. And my favorite, the spicy mayo. Spicy mayo that I not only drizzle on that sushi, but that I dip liberally. I'm a Baptist when it comes to sushi. I don't sprinkle and pour, I dip. And it elevates the experience. The sushi is why I'm there. But those various little sides, I, I don't care about breadcrumbs by themselves. I don't drink spicy mayo on its own. I don't just eat wasabi. I'm not, I'm not crazy. I'm not, I'm not sick. But when you add those elements to the main course, it elevates the whole experience. It turns good sushi into great sushi. I'm not saying that Christ is a good sacrifice and we turn him into a great sacrifice. But the, how God uses us in our, in, his, in our salvation in him, uses us like wasabi. Some of us are wasabi, other of us are spicy mayo, some of you are breadcrumbs, I don't know. Illustrations break down. You're part of the experience of salvation. And that helps you in Christ to rejoice in suffering. Because Christ suffered for you, Paul suffered for the church, you suffer now, you can rejoice because you are not alone. If there's any hopeful nature of this last point, is that in all of the suffering that you've experienced, that you have a Savior that knows that suffering too. You are not alone. You are not alone, even when you think you are alone. For you have a Savior that empathizes, not merely as a friend, but as a high priest that died for you. <clears throat> when we receive Christ in our hearts, He leads us to work out our salvation. We work it out by obedience, by a patient attitude, and with sacrificial joy. Maybe you come here today grumbly. Maybe you come here through the motions thinking that you can be a lawless believer and just live through. But remember that great phrase of the, of the Reformation, post tenebris lux, after darkness light. Even in the midst of a dark generation, even in the midst of darkness within your life, remember that as the Lord works, post tenebris lux. Such a great motto of the Reformation that in Geneva, it, be, it was stamped on the currency there. Every time you looked at a coin, you saw that after this dark situation that we are experiencing, the Lord will bring light. And He brings light to His church even today. He did it in Geneva, and He does it today too. And what a great reminder then, as we approach the table that is before us. A reminder of after darkness, light. The light of God. We have a taste of salvation here drawn up to the heavenly courts, as it were, to be reminded of what the new heavens and the new earth provide. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart, but call upon Him, for He will work out salvation in you. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your salvation in us. We thank You, O Lord, that if it were our own responsibility, that it would be something of an impossible task to feed. We thank you that upon our behalf, Christ died and worked salvation through us. It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.